Okay, we are in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. Probably finish up and maybe look at chapter, get started in chapter 6, I hope. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. And we just pray that as we go through this, that we will learn some practical things about our own lives and our relationship with you, our service to you, as we look at Nehemiah's example. And we, we thank you for the example he set, and just pray again that uh, that will be an encouragement to us to, uh, to follow that example in service to him. We pray that um, you'll bless our time now and help us to understand your words as we go through this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, to get our context, we're in Nehemiah 5. We'll start reading in verse 14, and then we'll go into chapter 6 through the first four verses. Through 6-4, we'll end at 6-4. So, let me start reading. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year of the 22nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also loaded in over the people, but out of reference to God, I did not act like that. I also applied myself to the work in this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were he- heavy on, me, on these people. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, Though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Uh, Sanballat and Geshem uh, sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Chephirim in the plain of Ono. And they were planning to harm me. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Four times they sent me that same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Okay. So uh, last week we we were we finished up the section that was dealing with the, the um, social economic problems of the wealthy Jews abusing the poor. Um, Nehemiah had kind of called them to account before the assembly of the people and told them that okay we need to remedy this. You need to give them back all the money you charged as interest. You need to give back the land that you've taken from them as surety. Uh, or buying it, uh, so basically he called a, a year of jubilee, restore the land to the original owners, um, possibly also forgiving loans. It's not clear. Um, anyways, they agreed to do this, and uh, so they agreed, they promised to do this. Then Nehemiah took them to the priests, and they took an oath before God to do this, and then Nehemiah pronounced a curse on them if they didn't do that. So the Jews had had a pretty bad record of keeping their uh, promises to God, so 
hopefully that uh, this would um, make them do it this time. So then we start in verse 14, um, and this is a little different section where Nehemiah is actually giving a, a, a summary of his uh, work as governor. And he began in verse 14 by telling us that you know, he had been appointed by Artaxerxes to be the governor, and he had spent uh, 12 years as the governor. So this appointment was in the same year that he was sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And although it doesn't say it in the text, the assumption is that he was in Jerusalem for a few months. When he got the walls done, he went back to Susa. That's when he got his official appointment, and then he returned to Jerusalem for 12 years. So that's... That scenario kind of makes sense with the bits and pieces we're given from Scripture, but you know we're not absolutely sure about that. Um, so he tells us he's basically going to summarize his 12 years as a governor, <coughs> and one of the things we'll see it was a, a very selfless uh, servant service to the people, and he was primarily interested in benefiting the Jewish people not taking advantage of them. At the end of verse 14, he does say that uh, he did not take the governor's food allowance. So the governor has the right to have the food that he needs to feed his family and all the other people associated with him. And we remember we went back and looked at King Solomon and his daily food allowance. There was like 30 head of cattle that they ate every day and <laughs> he probably had thousands of people under him. Um, we will see later what Nehemiah's allowance was. So this morning we're starting with verse 15. And this here he contrasts himself with the former governors. He says, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took them and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of the God. <clears throat> so here he's telling us what you know, the former governors had done. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 5 and verse 14. We'll look at who some of the former governors were. Ezra chapter 5 verse 14. So... Cyrus sent them, signed the decree to send the Jews back to the land in, um, was it 586, I think? 536, or 538, I'm trying to get the numbers right, 538 BC. And so someone would like to read verse five, or chapter 5, verse 14 for us. Okay, so Cyrus appointed Sheshbazar governor when he sent the Jews back initially. We don't hear very much about Sheshbazar. The one we hear about is Zerubbabel. So let's turn in Ezra to chapter 3. 
Someone would like to read verses 1 and 2 for us. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar to the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Okay, so... Okay, no, that's good enough, thank you. (coughs) So, by this time, Zerubbabel appears to be the one who's actually leading things. Yahshua is the high priest, Zerubbabel is the political leader. (coughs) I don't know if he's ever specifically stated to be an appointed governor or not, but he's the leading political leader there. Um... 20 years later, they complete the temple in 515 B.C. And when this is when they, they had started and stopped, and God sent um, Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, to get them kick-started. And they mention Joshua and Zerubbabel. However, reading in Ezra, it really doesn't mention Zerubbabel again. It mentions the elders of Israel. So it looks like by that time, you know, 20 years later, that he might still be governor, but he's not really mentioned as a leader. We don't have any mention again until this point with Nehemiah in, in the passages in the scriptures about who might be governor. It's just about a 70-year blank spot. Um, looking at the commentaries, they they do say that there's names of three different men that pop up. They find inscriptions on things. So it lists three, three different names of who may, might be governors, but they don't know anything about them. The only thing we know about them is what we read in our verse. <laughs> Whoever they were, they took advantage of the people. Um, I'm thinking possibly they were Gentile rulers from the surrounding nations who didn't care about the Jews, about their welfare, and and, uh, they just uh, uh, basically lived in luxury and took advantage of them. Um, But it does say they were a burden to them. They took bread and wine and money. (coughs) Money, it, it says 40 shekels of silver, that transfers to about 20 ounces. So that would have been 20 ounces of silver today. I, I Usually when I see money in here, I, I try to go online and see, well, what's their current cash price for an ounce of silver? This this works out to $464 a day. At what price per ounce? I can't remember what it was. <laughs> it's 25 I think, yesterday. Yeah. But... Uh, so if this was his daily payment, he, this worked out to be about $170,000 a year to serve as governor. Which, what, what are our governors? You know, that seems reasonable, actually. It's not excessive salary, but it fits somewhere with probably a little bit higher than what our different governors make around the country. So... Um, it's not exactly clear how much they would take, but Nehemiah says it was a heavy burden. And we've already been reading about the um, 
the economic problems, the social problems that they were having that Nehemiah was dealing with as a result of this burden on the people. Um, one of the problems they had was, um, they mentioned, was the king's taxes. So they had to pay taxes to King Artaxerxes in Susa, and then the local governor was also taking money for taxes. <clears throat> so we also see, uh, in addition to the governors taking food and, and money, it says their servants domineered the people. So here was some oppression from the servants. You know, whether that was when they went out to collect taxes or just bossing people around, it was kind of an uh, oppressive government. Uh, definitely not interested in the welfare of the people. Um, but Nehemiah says, I did not do so. He was different. He didn't exact the money from the people or the, um, the food. And he says it was because of the fear of God. So he understood the concept that, you know, our human authority is delegated by God. You know, when Christ was before Pilate, he said, you'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. You know, and Romans 13 makes that clear. You know, God is the one who appoints our governors and gives them their authority. And most human authorities don't recognize that. You know, we've got the great story of Nebuchadnezzar who was, you know, overlooking the city and thinking how great he was and then God sent him out to pasture for seven years and say, I'm the only reason you're in any, any authority at all. So Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. Uh, Nehemiah knew it. And so he understood he was accountable to God. He was responsible to God. And so that's the fear of the Lord. Um, and so this passage actually looks like, almost like a little short official report to his superior about how he was carrying out his duties. Because he knew he was accountable to God for this. Um, Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We will take a few times, we'll stop and look at Paul and his ministry, because he felt accountable in the same way. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, would someone like to read verse 9? So Paul, Paul thought it was very important not to be a burden to the people he was serving. And that's the same thing we have here. Nehemiah was not a burden. The former governors were burdens, but Nehemiah is um, not going to do that. His focus was on the welfare of the people, not on his own comfort, not on his own luxury. Going on to verse 16. He says, and I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered here for the work. So he's described how he has not been a burden to the people, and now he's going to talk about what I did do to help the people. This is the positive aspect of his service. You know, and, and as believers... You know, we're not called just to avoid sin and avoid evil. 
we're also called to serve God in a positive way. So we, have the, we avoid the negative, we also work toward the positive. And I want to look at a couple New Testament passages again. Let's look at Ephesians 2.10. This is one that someone might be able to quote even. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, we're created for good works. There's the positive side. Uh, again, this is right, you know, right in the passage where it says, you know, we're not saved by works, saved by grace, but we're created for good works. Uh, and let's also look at Second Peter chapter 1. Someone likes to read verse 8 for us. Second Peter 1 8. Which possess these, which possess these in qualities and increase measure, they will keep you from being inefficient and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he talks about the, the diligence and moral excellence and knowledge and all these things, and, which is growing in, in maturity. And Peter's telling him, if, you know, if you've grown and you've matured. As, as my version says, you will not be useless or unfruitful. You know, the knowledge of Christ, we should be useful. We should bear fruit. Um, you know, there's, sometimes I think there's too many useless believers. And we have to distinguish very carefully between the words useless and worthless. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking... You could own the largest diamond in the world. I think it is of a lot of value. But what use is it? Paperweight? <laughs> it's almost useless. Um, but it's of great value. You know, and Peter is also one that talks about how Christ purchased us with his blood. He paid a high price for us. And that's our value in, in God's eyes. So we can be of very high value to God, but we can also be pretty much useless to him. So this is the part where Nehemiah is talking about, here's the useful things I did. Here's how I served positively. So the verse tells us back in Nehemiah uh, 5.16 that he himself worked on the wall. He applied himself to the work. You know, he's personally was there doing it. He was leading, he was putting in long hours, providing the guidance. We talked about the encouragement that he gave the people when they needed encouragement, you know, arranged for their protection, um, set an example for them. Now, this is excellent leadership. You know, we have, you know, just, you know, current affairs, the um, president of the Ukraine, he's setting an example. You know, he's out there in the front lines with his soldiers. I mean, not getting exposed to getting killed necessarily because he knows the importance that he stay around to provide leadership, but he's encouraging them. You know, and, that, and that was a good example of leadership here. Nehemiah was doing the same thing. He was out there working on the walls. Um, so he was there himself doing that. Um, 
he also says that his servants were working on it. Do you remember the former governors? What were their servants doing? Lording it over over the people. Yeah, they were out domineering, pushing the people around. Nehemiah's servants are helping the people build the walls. Let's go back to chapter 4. Like someone like to read verse 16 for us. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah. Okay, so here's his servants. Half of them are, are actually building the wall as part of the construction crew. The other half are providing protection. How many are back at Nehemiah's house you know, preparing a bubble bath for him to, you know, relax in the afternoon. None of them. <laughs> no, they're all working. Um, and again, verse uh, 23. Someone would like to read that for us. Chapter 4. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. Okay, so they were out there... 24 hours a day. I mean, they'd sleep when they could find time to sleep, but they were building or protecting, um, putting in a tremendous amount of effort to help build the wall. Um, now, in the middle of this verse, it says, we did not buy any land, which sounds kind of odd, but that has to go. that goes back to the financial issues. Remember, the wealthy people were taking the land of the poor, um, in return for giving them the money they needed for food and, and, and clothing and, and survival. And so the wealthy were using the economic hardships to accumulate land. I didn't look it up. I, I know there's passages throughout the prophets where God condemns those who add house to house. You know, they, they buy land, they build up a you know, massive portfolio of real estate empire yeah they could build their little empires you know on the backs of the poor and so he says you know we did not buy any land so that is nehemiah that includes all his servants the people under him they're still patiently waiting to find out how they have grain to give to the people they don't have land and that's um nehemiah it's, it's just you know it says they were loaning grain so they must have grain. Yes, he had grain. He had some resources. We'll look at that in a little bit. No, as I say, I'm patiently waiting for that. No, you're not. I'm not. You're not? You're not waiting. You're jumping ahead. It's a patient issues question. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, you know, Christ said, and we looked at the verse where he says, you know, land not expecting to receive back. I think that was Nehemiah's position. People needed food. He lent them, lent them food, not expecting them to pay them back. He did not take their land in return for it. He did My not. My dad always told me the hardest things to pay back were food you've consumed and dash you've already used. <laughs> it was the hardest things to pay, you know, the hardest things to pay back yeah. on time after you've already used them. So. Right, Ooh. right. So we've already seen him loaning uh, out money and things, but now we're going to look at uh, 
Well, how many people did he feed on his own? This is, this is not even loaning. It's not lend or lending. I'm looking at verse 17. It says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Um, we're not really told in details who these people were, but we know uh, Nehemiah has a group of people with him. When we already read 4.23. But he talks about my brothers, my servants, the men of my guard. So brothers could be just fellow Jews or it could be relatives. His servants, his, all his household servants, the guard that came with him from Susa. So those are all his people that we know of. Um, the commentaries made some other suggestions. Uh, maybe some of the leaders of the community would come and eat at his table. Maybe he had some poor relatives or others who had come from uh, Babylon who needed support. So he would have them come and eat at his table. Let's turn back to Second Samuel chapter nine. You know, as you go through the history of the kings, there's a phrase about people who ate at their table. Here's, this is one example. Second Samuel chapter nine, and someone like to read verses seven and eight for us. Okay, this was Mephibosheth. He was the son of Jonathan, who, remember, Jonathan was David's best friend who had died in battle. And so David sought him out and invited He was lame, yeah. David sought him out and said, You will eat at my table. So, so kings and governors and rulers would have people who were basically taken in and would eat at their table. Uh, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. This is a not as nice as an example, but it's Jezebel. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 18, would someone like to read verse 19 for us? Okay, they eat at Jezebel's table. Now, they all end up dead because of God's judgment, but you see them eating at Jezebel's table. That, that might be, what is it? If all of them is 850 people that she fed. That would be a favorable. Yeah, I can, I can see lots of people volunteering for that job, you know. <laughs> Want to be fed the rest of your life? You just become one of my prophets. So there was a tendency for them to, to bring in a lot of people, and Nehemiah did the same. He had 150 people there uh, that he fed on a regular basis. It also mentions those who came uh, from the nations that were around us. 
you know, whenever you had a visitor come to the capital, you know, any kind of government official, it was the governor's responsibility to host them and, you know, take care of them and feed them. Uh, and, you know, even people passing through the region on their way somewhere else, they would you know, take care of them. Um, now, one of the things that it occurred to me is, you know, reading through this, just this section, I think it may refer to, um, again, he's talking about his 12-year term as governor. I don't think they were doing this necessarily while they were rebuilding the wall. So I think it refers to the time after the wall is rebuilt, things have stabilized. You know, this is a normal daily course of affairs, and this is how many people they feed every day. You know, I might be wrong there, but it, I get the feeling that it's not construction time. <laughs> you know, if you come and visit Jerusalem while Nehemiah is busy building a wall, you may not get fed. <laughs> you may be handed a carrying a wheelbarrow or something and put to work. So, what was his daily food bill? We have that in verse 18. Now that which was prepared each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on the people. Okay, so daily food requirements. You've got one ox, six choice sheep, and then it lists birds or poultry. And the commentary said they did have chickens. <laughs> they had been around for a century or two. They gave a brief history of chickens coming from different cultures and showing up in, in uh, Palestine. Um, now it also mentions every, every 10 days wine in abundance. Now this does not refer to binge drinking. They didn't have a party every 10 days. <laughs> I think I think what it means is they either got a shipment of wine that came in every 10 days and they refilled their, their vessels uh, every 10 days. Um, now the thing it doesn't mention that we had seen with Solomon's list is grain and flour and meal, things like that. You know, that would have had to be included. Fruit, I know they had figs. Uh, I don't know what else they would have. Um, but there's other things that would be supplied too along with these, these basic, you know, he just lists the meat, really. You got uh, beef, sheep, and poultry. Just lists the meat. Um, now he says he provides all this without using the food allowance. The governor has a food allowance. So he, he could have demanded that the people of the land give him all this stuff every day. And he says he does not do that. You know, they were already burdened. Um, he, he says that they had a heavy burden on them, so he wasn't going to take any more from them. <clears throat> I started wondering, did this go on for 12 years? How, you know, how did he pay for it? Was he incredibly wealthy when he came to Judah and he had enough money to do this? And I, I kind of think not. Um, if he was a he governor, was <laughs> if, yeah. if, if he was a governor appointed by Susa, he probably had a salary of some kind. 
That's what I'm guessing. And he paid it out of his own salary. You know, again, we, we're not told, but, you know, I can't imagine. Maybe it's used to the that bearers didn't need all the salary he got. So. Right. So. I know they say that George Washington was pretty much penniless when he died because of the war and the fact that there weren't funds. And then he had this big estate to run and slaves to take care of. Uh-huh. It did. Are you saying you don't make any money farming? <laughs> you're poor guy rich. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so that describes pretty much what he did and how, how he behaved in office. So let's look at verse 19, which is kind of the summary, where he says, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So this is kind of seems to be the purpose of, of his writing this last section. Um, he recounts his good deeds. He wants God to remember these things and about how he took care of God's chosen people. Now, I don't think this is for self-glorification. It's not working for his salvation. But I think it's a request that God blesses him in return for his obedience. Um, you know, if this is prayed while he's still governor, it may have been his request that God continue to bless him in, as in his role. Um, but I think he's, he's uh, writing this as part of his memoirs later in life. Uh, and... And he's thinking in terms of, you know, I'm getting older. I'm going to go stand before my God. These are the things I've done. And we see that in our, in our last chapter. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to look at several verses here. Nehemiah chapter 13. Does someone like to read verse 14 for us? Okay, remember me for what I've done. Uh, so I'd like to read verse 22 for us. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Okay, and then finally, uh, last verse, 31. So I'd like to read that for us. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Okay, so we've had, you know, these last two had to do with you know, purifying the Levites for service, arranging wood for the sacrifices, for the burnt sacrifices. And, it, you know, these are all the good, good things that Nehemiah has done in service for God, and he's saying, remember me, God. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think he's getting older. He's contemplating his death. He's recounting, you know, his, his, his past. Um, I'm going to stand before my God. And he's asking God, remember this. These are the things that I have done. Please remember me for good. Um, 
Let's look at another example of this. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 20. This is Hezekiah, who was a, a good king of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 20. Someone like to read verses 1 through 3 for us. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Okay, so he's facing death, but he's again, he's asking God, Remember what I have done, the good things I've done. Let's also turn to... He lived another 15 years. <laughs> there we go. God gave him another 15 years. And during that time, Manasseh was born, who was one of the worst kings that ever lived. <laughs> so, you know, maybe he would have been better if Hezekiah had passed away. So. Well, let's look at Second Timothy. Yeah. Second Timothy is called Paul's swan song. His last, I think, the last letter he wrote. Second Timothy chapter four. Would someone like to read verses six through eight for us? Yes, please. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all that have loved his appearing. Okay. So, you know, Paul is approaching death. He knows he is. He, now he's talking about the good things that he's done. Now, this isn't bragging. This is, this is a legitimate evaluation of, of what he's done. You know, I've, I've heard um, a definition of humility is seeing ourselves exactly as God sees us. You're not, you know, underestimating or overestimating, you know, but having a good, accurate understanding of who we are, what we've done. You know, we've, if you've done some good things, you've done some good things. You know, you don't have, you know we're not bragging just by acknowledging the fact that we have done some things that are good in God's eyes. Um, but one of the things I thought interesting, reading what Paul is writing, do you see it? There's like a different attitude or spirit here than the other ones we've looked at. There's a lot more assurance. He knows where he's going. He knows, he says, you know, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. He knows that. I think Paul... With, with the increased revelation of the, that came with the gospel, he has that insurance. In the Old Testament, I don't think they had as much information. They did not know maybe uh, exactly what to expect. And so there was a little bit of uncertainty involved. But with Paul, we see uh, 
a complete understanding of his salvation, his reward because of God's grace. Um, very, very confident and assured. Um, okay. So we're kind of halfway through this. I'll, and we're running out of time. So, uh, well, let me, let me look at it. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Trying to find a good breaking point in my notes. Acts chapter 20, we see some of his. This is his last meeting with the elders from Ephesus. Someone would like to read verses 17 through 21. Okay, and then on the opposite page, starting in verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you, by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he's not bragging here. This is an this is a honest evaluation of how he behaved amongst them. Um, and we see this very selfless behavior that we see in Nehemiah. You know, I did not take advantage. I was not a burden. I worked to help the people. Um, and he honestly admits it. I mean, it's not, he's not bragging. This is the way he lived. And I'm thinking sometimes, you know, it's good for us to sit down and evaluate ourselves. You know, what have I accomplished you know, you think back, sometimes it's like, okay, what did I do that I wish I hadn't? Or <laughs> what should I have done? Um, you know, you can't change that, but you can look and say, how can I get better? What should I do in the future? You know, our eva- evaluating the past is often the best way of helping figure out how we can do better in the future. It reminds me of, we evaluate uh, our administrator every year. Right. The three, three rivers, and it's the same type of thing. Right. I was thinking, what have you done? What have you done? Yeah. And, you know, certainly this was written in scripture for our benefit and example. And sometimes I think um, it's helpful in a humble sense to do that with some right. people as right. an example. Right. You know. Um, and it helps us too. You know, I was, I was thinking, yeah, like, Marie, when I, you know, working for a warehouse, I had an annual evaluation. You look at, here's what I accomplished, here's what I, here's my goals for next year. So we can do that with ourselves. That's probably good. Okay, well, we need to close uh, with time. So, um, Brian, would you like to close in prayer for us, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this word and the teachings that, you know, of uh, there are some examples of good leaders out there and how they should lead the people and actually be good examples and stuff. And please be with us and, you know, let it enter our hearts and, 
be with Pastor Robert in this next hour to come. Let, let our hearts and minds be open to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.